Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. All right, last class session we talked about Shutter Island. In this class session we're gonna jump into the movie Hugo, uh, which I'm hoping some of you have seen. Um, but if you haven't, the story of Hugo is, is um, it's a story of an orphan boy who's basically trying to find his place in the world after the sudden death of his father. Um, and along the way, he finds the great filmmaker, Georges Méliès, who helps, kind of helps him find his place, basically. Um, before we get too deep into this film, I feel like I have to cover some of the history that's in this film. Um, because I think Marty would want us to, you know. So let's talk about who is Georges Méliès. Georges Méliès was a French filmmaker who recognized recognized that the medium of film was a great way to not only tell stories, but to do magic. Because Georges Méliès was a magician, first and foremost. And then began to understand that this medium of film would allow him to do magic that even he was not capable of in actuality. And so he was this great magician of cinema, really pushed the medium in a lot of ways, um, you know, with stuff that seems very, very elementary now, things like zero cuts and um, double exposure and, you know, those kinds of things, these, these sorts of things that, that we, we take for granted now and, and, and would seem almost childish or amateurish. But at the time, they were great innovations. I mean, this is... This is pre-World War One. The the medium of cinema is still being formed. You know, but it's because of men like this that we that we could talk about filmmakers like James Cameron, you know, who have pushed special effects to a whole other level or Steven Spielberg or what have you. Um, you know, and, and so he made films like A Trip to the Moon, which is featured heavily in the film Hugo and is talked about at length in any film history class. You know, a story about these guys who who take a rocket to the moon and then have to get back. And, you know, it's, it, it's pretty hokey. There's a really classic image of, of the moon, the, um, the moon face, you know, with the man on the moon and this big rocket poking him in the eye. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, George Melies, he was, a he, he, he was a magician. He was a showman. He was, he was, greatly important to cinema because he brought crowds in so that he was doing a movie every week. He would do a short, you know, a short silent film every week because it would sell tickets, you know. And so he, he not only helped push push forward the medium artistically, but also also financially. He made it popular, Um which is another reason that we have films like we do today where I'm not as much anymore, but people go to a, people pay money to watch movies. And, and, and this was one of the first guys to kind of do that on a, on a, on a larger scale, a lot bigger than what Thomas Edison was doing. And Thomas Edison actually ended up stealing a lot of Melier's films and showing them off as his own. Um, you know, Thomas Edison would have like the little Nickelodeons or something like that, where you put a nickel in and you, one person watches it, but Melies was showing these films to mass audiences. Now, and I'd also like to talk a little bit about the Lumiere brothers because the Lumiere brothers were 
they were some of the first pioneers in film. They kind of inspired George Méliès in some ways because the Lumiere brothers were doing were doing much much shorter films that were very gimmicky. Um, because because when the Lumiere brothers were doing this, they film was still just a novelty. It like nobody really thought to like do a tell a story with it or anything. They would just capture something and show it to people. And they would travel on fairs and circuses, you know, and 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 show their films. Um, one of the best stories, and 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 they pay homage to it in the film Hugo, about the Lumiere brothers is they they showed their film Arrival of a Train at La Chitoa. Chiota. I I can't speak French. I'm sorry. Um, you know, and it's 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 just one shot of looking down a um, looking down a train platform. So you're not shooting it straight on. You're looking down the platform, um, you know, so there's all this depth. And the train comes toward the camera. And the audience, you know, at that last second right there when the train, it looks like it's about to just come right out at the screen at you, the audience supposedly just leapt out of their seats in, in terror having no idea what what they were seeing. You know, they'd seen photographs before, but they'd never seen a sequence of photographs played together in a way that gives the audience the, the feeling of seeing movement. In fact, you can find um, uh, Lush, uh, uh, Arrival of a Train. You look up Arrival of a Train, um, Lumiere brother, or Lumiere, 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 I don't know. L-U-M-I-E-R-E Brothers. And you can see this in one of the first films. Another one of their, quote, classics is fa- uh, is workers leaving a factory. It's just all these women leaving leaving a factory at the end of the day. Um, and they also show some of that in Hugo as well. So there's all this history of, of this medium that's packed into this film. And so I wanted to kind of give you guys a brief overlook of some of it, even though a lot of it's in the movie. I think it's fascinating, and I think it's important to to keep talking about these people and to keep trying to understand uh, the roots of filmmaking as we know them today that allows us to talk about Martin Scorsese or Alfred Hitchcock or whoever. So, so there's all these scenes that are flashbacks to Melies at his apex, um, you know, and they did so many things to try to try to really, really pay as much tribute and homage to Melies and his artwork as possible. You know, they'd spend months just breaking down the film and ironing out all the details on how to get the exact right props and the exact right wardrobe. You know, they were looking for scouring England for actors who looked like the original actors that Melies cast in his films. And then of course, recreating all the blocking and the action, you know, just just so. And then they show you clips of the old films. And those are high-definition restorations that the film, I guess, I guess that was part of their budget, was to restore many of these Méliès films. Um, and and, and they, they didn't really color correct them hardly at all. They maybe a little bit of touch on them, but... but what you see are these, what, what you're seeing are restorations of the original Melies films, which Marty is such a big uh, proponent and advocate for 
film preservation, um, that it only makes sense that one of his movies would help would help in the restoration of, of films by Melies. Um, one of the other things that they did is the, so the Lumiere brothers um, were one of the first to experiment with color because that was one of the first things people wanted. They wanted color. Um, they didn't want to just see black and white images. Apparently it wasn't enough anymore that the images seemed to move, but they wanted color. And so um, they patented a process called autochrome. Uh, or maybe they didn't patent, but but they 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 used a process called autochrome, and so what Marty and the director of photography Bob Richardson and this colorist that they hired did was they they tried to replicate that look as much as possible for these flashback sequences because that was the the style of color that that these you know films were were made and seen in that would have been the color of the era for cinema much like he did in the aviator where they did the two strip and the three strip technicolor looks based on the era they were in they did something very similar here except it wasn't technicolor it was autochrome so hopefully that gives you a little bit of kind of groundwork of where this film was it, it, in my opinion the 30 or so minutes they spend talking about Melies and his film history and, and, and all this kind of stuff. For me, that's, that's the best part of the movie, but I'm a nerd that way. One of the things, though, that I found in a Martin Scorsese interview where he talks to um, the Lucasfilm group um, is that uh, Georges Melies was actually moving toward doing 3D. And one of the things that started that was because Thomas Edison was pirating so many of his films, he would shoot two cameras right next to each other. Um, and one of them would be a print that he would hold on to and the other print would go overseas. But that way he always had a print that had his name on it so that he could prove that it was his. Um, but not only was George Melies actually mo was moving toward this, but the Lumiere brothers actually did 3D, according to Martin Scorsese. I haven't researched this enough. I probably should. Um, but they actually achieved 3D in the 1900s, in the early 1900s. So for Marty, it only made sense for him in some ways to do this film in 3D. Not only is there the tie-in historically toward the spectatorship and the showmanship of Georges Méliès and the Lumiere brothers, but there's also a tie-in directly to something that was actually not only sought after, but actually accomplished in the era that, that we're discussing. Now, on top of that, there were other artistic reasons. Um, the film is based on a book that has these very wonderful illustrations that have great depth in them, and, and Marty was very inspired by that. And they built this, this wonderful train station set where most of the film takes place, and that is huge, just absolutely massive, and lends itself to the depth of 3D. And then there's Marty's personal connection to it. Because Marty grew up on 3D with films like House of Wax or Dial In for Murder. But Marty wasn't really interested in doing these gimmicky things where, where uh, you know, things are just flying at the camera. He wanted it to be immersive. He wanted it to be a tool in the bag to help tell the story visually. Much like how Hitchcock uses 3D and Dial In for Murder. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's, it's episode 111 or 113, I think, um, of Hitchcock University, we talked about Dialing for Murder. And, and right at the tail end, we talked about 
how Hitchcock intentionally used it to add depth to the image, not to bring that much forward in the image. We usually think of 3D as something coming out of the screen at the audience, but Hitchcock was much more interested in creating more and more layers of depth in the image, which is really what we do now when you watch a lot of 3D films that come out these days. And so Marty was more Marty was also more interested in, in creating that depth and not creating gimmicky things that would come out and, you know, be out there amongst the audience. It, one of the things we talked about or learned from Hitchcock was you have to save your tools. You have the ability, just because you have the ability to have something come come toward the audience doesn't mean that that's when it always has to, doesn't mean it always has to happen that way. He saved that ability for very key moments in the story and was able to give those moments extra emphasis through the use of the 3D technology. But let's get back to Marty. See, one of the things that 3D did was it really it forced Marty to have to rethink the medium that he was working in that he thought he had a handle on because he found that camera movements would play differently in 3D or that the physical comedy that Sacha Baron Cohen brings to the film plays differently in 3D. There's this extra layer that's going on with the added depth and with the ability for things to come toward the audience or to go away from the audience that that it, it really changes everything and really changes how everything plays. And so Marty had to, had to constantly be rethinking the medium and, and reworking things on set because it just didn't work the way he thought it would in his head. And so one of the things that Marty realized is that this medium becomes almost more of a mix between film and stage, at least in his opinion. It didn't play as straight as a film would, but it also doesn't play as straight as a, as a play would, as a stage play would. But there's this kind of blending between the interactions with the depth and that, that kind of immersive ability that 3D can have. But one of the things that Marty Marty did frequently was was he would manipulate the 3D because so there's these two cameras that are that are running jointly and 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 with this this newer technology the real 3D is what they call it uh, there's this interocular or IO as they refer to it device that allows you to keep one camera stationary but one of them will slip forward or backward or maybe it's apart I'm not sure but they slip Maybe both. I'm not. I, I I even read the the American Cinematographer article on it, and I didn't 100% get it. But I, from what I can tell, is is one of the cameras is stationary, and one of them one of them can slip. One of them can move around, at least forward or backward, but possibly also side to side. I'm not really sure, and that affects how the 3D plays. It 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 affects the depth of the image. It affects, um, yeah. I mean it it. It, it mostly affects the depth of the image. It affects, it affects the separation between foreground and background, essentially. And so one of the things that Marty would have them do frequently was to, was to bring the actors more forward, always. Always more forward. And really separate them from their background and let everything that was depth become depth. And just let it go on and on and on and on and on. But bring the actors up front to the audience. Um, one person described it almost as if Almost as if you're sitting in the front row or in the orchestra pit and the actors are right there at the lip of the stage. You know, it kind of has that feel to it. Um, which again takes us back to this idea of kind of mixing the two, 
between film and stage. So that's all I have for Hugo. Um, it actually went a little longer than I thought. I was afraid that was going to be really short. Um, we only have two more class sessions left, and then we're done. We have we have The Wolf of Wall Street, which I'm very excited about, one of my favorite Marty films. And then we have Silence, which is a film that I've only seen once, honestly, but I really, really enjoyed it when I did see it in the theater. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to get to learn more about that film and to get to hear what Marty has to say about it and to uh, kind of reveal more about that film and, and hopefully introduce you all to something that you haven't seen before. Um, I want to go ahead and set up our next semester. We're going to talk about, we're, we're actually going to try something that's a little different. We're going to do, we're going to have two, two filmmakers that we're learning from. We're going to do Quentin Tarantino and we're going to do Robert Rodriguez. And we'll talk more about this when we when we actually launch that semester. But um, the reason I'm doing that is because Tarantino has a very limited filmography. Um, and so I can't fill a whole semester's worth. And in case you haven't caught on, our semesters are, at, are, are closer to a calendar year. Um, but Robert Rodriguez um, is a very close friend of Tarantino's and has a style that I really personally enjoy and has different ways of thinking about filmmaking that I'm looking forward to kind of diving into and learning from. Um, and as much as they have their similarities, they also have great differences in the way they think about the medium. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm planning on doing it by release date. We'll kind of, we'll kind of try to think about it that way. I think we're going to launch the semester with Reservoir Dogs. So if you need to catch up, if you just want to rewatch it, that's fine. And then we'll do El Mariachi. But we'll start with those two, probably in that order. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. I hope you all are excited about that. I know these guys can be a little uh, controversial uh, with their content, but um, I, I personally love their filmmaking uh, more than anything. Um, so yeah, we'll do, so like I said, we'll do Wolf of Wall Street, we'll do Silence, and then we'll have uh, a hiatus of sorts, um, kind of a, kind of a between semester break, and then we'll get back into, um, into the swing of things and start things off, uh, with Reservoir Dogs, and I think that will probably go up. It'll probably be up by January 7th. Um, so so you'll have the whole holiday. You'll have, um, you know, tail end of December and the new year to to kind of get get everything going. And then and then we'll come back. Um, that's all I have for this class session. Um, if you like what you're listening to or have any comments, concerns, otherwise questions, uh, feel free to uh, reach out to the podcast. You can email us. Our email is hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter feed, hitch underscore you as in university. And then, of course, the Facebook page, Hitchcock University. Um, also, feel free to give us a, a like, a comment, a rating, a review. Otherwise, um, that's at, uh, you know, wherever it is you listen to the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, what have you. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, I've been Taylor Bickle. This has been Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Thanks.